Let us pray. Father, we praise you and we praise you because you are the Lord whose mercy is more, more abundant than all our sins, covering our sins from, from past to the future, to the, including the present. Oh Lord, we thank you and praise you for we know that apart from Jesus Christ, apart from your mercy, we would still be dead in our sins. We would still be lost. In fact, we would not even want to worship you. We would still be at enmity with you. Oh Lord, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for saving sinners. Thank you for saving rebels like ourselves. <coughs> and we praise you because we, we know that you've saved us and you're doing a work in us and you're going to complete it one day in Christ Jesus to remove this sin nature that is in us. Thank you, Father, for paying for, the, for the, the penalty of our sins. And Lord, as we look to your word now, we pray that your word, which is truth, would sanctify us and help us to have victory over the power of sin in our lives. Help us to live in light of the death of Christ for our sins. Lord, we commit to you uh, our, our, the sermon this morning and pray that your spirit would be our teacher. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to, again, the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 23, verses 13 to 25. Luke 23, 13 to 25. It's pretty exciting. Uh, in these last two chapters, they're just so rich. They're, uh, though they are maybe familiar for many of us, yet they are they're powerful truths. They're, they're juggler texts, I call them. They're, they're texts that just speak so powerfully because we see in this the, the, the things that Jesus endured as he headed towards the cross and including the cross as well as his death on the cross and his resurrection. Uh, so these are very, uh, very uh, uh, important and essential tr truths of, of our faith in Christ. So Luke 23, verse 13, to 20, 13 through 25. And I'll be reading the sermon, uh, the text within the sermon this morning. Well, uh, many of you may have, you know, uh, been uh, noticed that, uh, and I, which I had noticed in my my Google, my not Google Calendar, my my Apple Calendar, uh, that May uh, is Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. I didn't even know that. It's kind of like, oh, that's kind of cool. That's AAPI Heritage Month, and I'm being of you know Asian American uh, descent uh, or you know, Asian American. Uh, it's like, oh, that's kind of neat. Um, now, uh, it is, and it's kind of fitting in these days because, as you many of you have been following, if you read the news, follow the news, there's been increasing uh, reports of violence against Americans of Asian descent. And uh, of course, and so people are becoming more aware. There's a lot more awareness. There's a lot more discussion uh, regarding this this violence, and uh, it is it is real. Uh, just look at the news. Um, of course, this also rides us on the on the coattails of the, of maybe still ongoing Black Lives Matter movement, uh, and and so and that, and very uh, understandably. Uh, the condemnation of, of racism and injustice uh, has become the, the latest kind of a cry of our world. The world's always kind of moving from one thing, one, one issue to another issue. And, but it's sort of, at least, at least from my small corner of the world, it seems to be the latest issue uh, which uh, the world is, uh, at least in America, is caught up with. And even as individual Christians, we may choose to stand together with the world in the rallies and uh, the roundtables, raising awareness of the reality of racism. We also, as Christians, stand apart. You know what I mean? We stand apart. We're, we're together on some issues, but we also stand apart on others. 
We stand apart from the world knowing that even as we condemn one sin, this, the sin of racism, or let's see, a couple sins to con- combine, really, but that we condemn this, which is for simplicity's sake, say the sin of racism. Even as we condemn that one sin, we also, as Christians, know that we condemn really all sin. All sin. Even those prevalent sins in our world that the world won't ever condemn. We condemn all sin as sin, as a as a violation of God, a transgression of God's laws. And while we can, even while we condemn injustice, we know that our faith is built upon the greatest injustice committed in all human history, and that is the murder of the Son of God, of which every single soul that has ever lived is guilty of. That Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, that comes out of 1 Peter 3.18. This is the the message of the gospel. It is our primary message. It's the primary hope of the church, of Christians, in the face of injustice, whether it's racism or whatever, persecution for our faith or or anything where we are are treated uh, wrongly or or, or suffer for no no reason at all. In fact, it is the gospel that is what inspires us as Christians to, to speak and to act against sin and injustice in the world. While offering, though, that the solution is not in what the world calls for. It's not in breaking down uh, uh, systems of racism, systems that promote racism, but it is in breaking down sinful rebellion against God through repentance and faith in Jesus one soul at a time. Today's passage that we come to reminds, uh, reminds me of the central truth of our faith, that the just died for the unjust. The substitutionary death of the Son of God, so that we may be reconciled to God and as well as to one another. That's why the gospel is needed, because that is what brings true reconciliation between men. And in this final trial that we're going to look at today, the trial of Jesus Jesus before Pilate, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, we learn that although Jesus has done no wrong, he is still nevertheless condemned to die for the unjust. Jesus has up to this point been arrested by the Jewish authorities, religious leaders. He's been brought before um, the trials, before the, the ecclesiastical rulers. He's been denied, uh, betrayed by Judas, denied by Peter. He's been mocked and abused by the guards. And before Annas, Caiaphas, and the whole Sanhedrin, false witnesses were brought against him, accusing him of this or that, of which no consistency could be found, until they condemned him for the truth that he claims and he said that he is the Christ. But he's also been now led through the Gentile political rulers like Pilate initially, as well as Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch of Galilee, and leading now to this final trial that we're going to look at. And in this final trial, before Pilate, we're going to observe the, the innocence of Jesus, the innocence of Jesus, the insistence of the crowds, and the injustice of Pilate. And as we observe these uh, three factors, so we're going to look at three outline, uh, these three factors, 
Together, they magnify the death of, just, of the just for the unjust. Okay, we look at the outline. Three factors in this trial, before, final trial before Pilate that magnify the death of the just one for the unjust ones, ourselves. All right, so hopefully um, this, is, uh, this is the gospel and, uh, um, you know, that it will, that we pray, we'll pray that this would be a, 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 that the spirit would help us to look at this afresh and new and be, be challenged and be, and be drawn to uh, the love of God and the, and the great injustice that is committed against the Son of God. We look, first of all, in, the, in these three factors that magnify the death of the just for the unjust in verse 13 to 16, and that is simply what we, um, what we call the innocence of Jesus. We see the innocence of Jesus throughout uh, these trials, but it's particularly brought out here in verse 13 to 16. There we read in verse 13 to 16, Pilate uh, summoned the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges with which you make against him. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. So now the, the trial now of Jesus is, now, is coming to a close. This is his last of six trials. Three before the ecclesiastical rulers, three before the, the civil rulers. This is the final one before Pilate. It's the, it's a, this uh, Jesus trial has all the elements of a Roman trial that, uh, that was common in those days. There would be the arrest, then followed by charges, an examination, a verdict, and a, followed by a judicial warning. And when the Sanhedrin had brought Jesus before Pilate, uh, the charges they had brought, they had brought a, uh, were charges of sedition. And this was, we saw this back in verse 2 of chapter 23. They accused him of, of claiming to be a king and therefore inciting the nation not to pay taxes to Caesar and, in fact, rebelling against Caesar. But Pilate had already examined him, as we re- looked at last time. And, in fact, Herod Antipas, the tetrarch of Galilee, also had examined him. Now, Pilate summons all the Jewish leaders back as well as it's open to the to seems it's open to the public as well. People are invited to hear the verdict of Pilate regarding Jesus. Pilate's verdict is that Jesus is not guilty. He's not guilty. He's he's innocent. Pilate says, "I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charge which you have made against him. No guilt." They came. They accused him of treason, of sedition, of rebellion, and. Herod finds no guilt in him. After all the accusations, after all the examination, <clears throat> no charge against him stands. No charge against Jesus will ever stand. On top of Pilate's verdict, the decision is also confirmed by Herod, we see in verse, uh, uh, in verse 15. Herod, too, had found nothing deserving of death in Jesus. And from a biblical perspective, we see here, because Luke points out that, uh, or even Pilate points out, that he himself didn't find him guilty and Herod didn't find him guilty, that from a biblical perspective, the fact that there are two witnesses from an Old Testament law part, uh, point of view confirm the matter as truth. And normally, if uh, two or more witnesses would confirm the truth, then that would lead to an average person being released. But not in this case. Pilate knows that those who these, that these who have brought Jesus were out for blood. You see, they they want to kill Jesus. Luke had told us earlier in chapter twenty-two, verse two, that chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death. 
They just didn't want to stop him. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to murder Jesus. The Jewish rulers could have handled many matters just by themselves, among themselves, without Romans, Rome's help, but they could not execute a man. And so they only brought him to Pilate in order to have him executed. And their charge was one that was a capital offense, according to Rome. Understanding that the rulers want to have Jesus killed, Pilate offers to satisfy their, their thirst for blood. Right? He says he knows that though he's found Jesus innocent, he wants to satisfy their thirst. He knows what they want. And he offers basically to satisfy their thirst for blood by punishing Jesus and then releasing him. So I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll, he's innocent, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to punish him. The punishment, of course, in those days involved using a whip, a whip with metal, sometimes bone, metal tips that were designed basically not just to lash someone's back, but to tear at someone's back, to tear the skin off someone's back so that there would be blood coming down his back so that it would be visible to everyone who's watching that it was a bloody, gory mess, painful kind of punishment committed against an innocent man to satisfy the crowds. Jesus was innocent, according to Pilate, according to Herod, and had done nothing to deserve this kind of punishment. Imagine if you were found not guilty of a crime. Say you were accused of a crime, then you went through a trial, you were found not guilty of a crime, but then before releasing you, they say, well, we're going to punish you, we're going we're to whip you, and then we'll let you go, just for the trouble. We would say, we would demand, we would be, we would be upset with the injustice, we would to be demanded to be set free without any further penalty. If Jesus is guilty, certainly punishment is due. But Jesus, Jesus is innocent. He's not guilty of the crimes charged against him. In fact, we know that Jesus is innocent and not guilty of not just this crime of sedition, or rebellion, but of any crimes, nor any sins. In his humanity, Jesus could be truly, like, was, like us, like humans, all the humans, could be tempted by sin. Think about the going when he went, was led by Satan to be tempted in the wilderness. He was tempted in all manners, just like ours, and yet without sin. He never once sinned, Hebrews 4.15. He's called in Acts chapter 3, the, the holy and righteous one. He's called in John 6.68, the holy one of God. Jesus is a perfect, sinless, righteous son of God. He knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21. In the Old Testament, when priests... Uh, were given the task to offer sacrifices for the sins of people, they always had to offer sacrifices for themselves first. They had to purify themselves of their sins before they could offer sacrifices for the sins of others. But in contrast, Jesus is a perfect, sinless high priest. Uh, the author of Hebrews writes, puts it this way for us. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus never had to offer sins for himself because he was sinless. He simply paid for everyone's sins once for all because he was innocent, holy, undefiled, and separated from sin. Though Jesus was holy and innocent, makes his death for our sins that much more profound. 
You know, if you commit a crime, would it ever be all right to punish another person for the, for who, was, who, was, uh, who was either not guilty of the, your particular crime, but maybe they were guilty of the same kind of crime? So maybe you stole something. So they found somebody else who had been a thief, and they punished him for your sin. Would that be okay? They're a thief, right? You can punish them. Even in our sense of uh, justice, that would be wrong. How much more then if you commit a crime and then an innocent person who's not even guilty of that crime, not guilty of any crime, is punished for that crime instead? That's what we call injustice. It's not the fair application of punishment upon those who are guilty of sin. Those who are guilty of sin do not get punished and those who are innocent of sin get punished or he who is innocent of sin gets punished. But that's exactly what happened on the cross, is it not? What evil has this man done? The answer, of course, is nothing. Then why this injustice? Why this injustice in the murder of the Son of God? Things would get worse for Jesus in this trial. And we see, come to, not only we see his innocence, but we see a second factor that magnifies the death of the just one for the unjust ones. We see this in verse 17 to 23, and that is the insistence of the people that how the people respond in this trial is further magnifies the, 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 the glory of Christ's death for our sins. Verse 17 to 19, we read this. Now he was obliged to release to them at the feast one prisoner, but they cried out all together saying, Away with this man and release for us Barabbas. He was one who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection and made in the city and for murder. You may notice in your footnotes, or even some of your Bibles, verse 17 could be missing, actually. Uh, the footnote will indicate that uh, verse 17 is not present in the earliest manuscripts. In fact, it's most likely it's a scribal error. It's probably brought in because this verse is mentioned in the other uh, Gospels, Matthew, uh, Mark, as well as John. It's most likely a scribe had filled it in, had written it down here, uh, just having forgot or just wanted to further explain. But nevertheless, it does reflect a historically true statement. It's conceived, we see it in the other Gospels. And Pilate's offer then to release Jesus may have been made with this, this statement in mind or this concept in mind. The Passover was, a, was often, as you know, a politically charged. A lot of the rebellions in, in Israel, particularly in Jerusalem, would take place usually during a holy feast because that's when all the people would get together and they would be thinking about their religious, their, their, their love for the Lord, their God, and they would, and they would be kind of in a, a religious zeal and they would very easily be set off like a fire and, and, and lead to political unrest. And Passover was that. It was a politically charged atmosphere that could easily explode. Uh, so the custom then uh, was developed of releasing a prisoner who had been uh, that, uh, of the people's choice as a tool to pacify the crowds during these uh, holy days. And of course, the great thing about this custom was the fact that it wasn't Pilate who would get to choose, but the people would get to choose who would be free. One person could be chosen to be set free by the people. However, uh, the rulers and the crowd did not reply as to Pilate's offer to punish Jesus as expected. Instead, they all cry out together for another prisoner to be released. They don't, they don't want Jesus, who is the Christ. They want someone named Barabbas. The prisoner's name, Barabbas, is an Aramaic name, meaning the son of the father, son of Abba, son of the father. And uh, 
Luke tells us that Barabbas was an insurrectionist. He was a, basically a, a seditionist, a rebel. Uh, he is exactly the kind of person that the Jewish rulers had accused Jesus of being. And here they are demanding that this rebel, rebel insurrectionist, seditionist, would be set free in place of Jesus, who is innocent. On top of this, Barabbas, we are told, was a murderer. He had likely killed someone as part of his rebellion. And it's very quite likely and very probable that the crowd that had gathered this morning, the people that had gathered, remembering, knowing this tradition, this custom, were gathering there to ask for the release of Barabbas. They wouldn't have known of Jesus because Jesus was just arrested the night before. So when given the choice between Jesus and Barabbas, their politically charged minds really wanted Barabbas only. They didn't want to release Jesus. They wanted Pilate to release Barabbas. So Pilate tried again. They didn't respond to his first offer. He tried again to release Jesus in verse 20 and 21. Look at that with me. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again. But they kept on calling out saying, Crucify! Crucify him! Now Pilate was not a Jew. He was a Roman. He was not, not a follower of Christ. He was not a God-fearing uh, Gentile. So he had zero interest in the fact that Jesus was the Christ, or Jesus is the king, messianic king. But Luke tells us, though, that he wanted to release Jesus. That's a really interesting point. Pilate wants to release Jesus. And at first we may think, oh, Pilate's a good guy. But Pilate's not a good guy. Historical documents, records, just like Josephus and others, right? Pilate was kind of a, he was, he was a, he was a politician. And he, was, uh, he was cruel, he didn't care. He was not the very sensitive guy. He was not someone who uh, basically cared about, uh, really, the people that he ruled over. But he wanted, nevertheless, to release Jesus. Matthew and Mark provide uh, for us greater detail about this, this instance and tell us that Pilate knew at this moment that the chief priests and, and uh, scribes were motivated by envy of Jesus that they were envious of Jesus. He knows that they, basically Jesus is on the scene and he's a teacher of the, of the, of the, the scriptures and he's basically uh, taking away their, their power, their, their glory. He's taking away their authority. And perhaps, mo I, I think, and, but it's, it's all, it's kind of, uh, it's, it's a little subject, it can be anyone's, I guess. Pilate wanted to release Jesus so that the religious leaders would continue to have, uh, to focus on Jesus be distracted from focusing on Rome. Uh, that's just kind of how it goes, you know. Um, the enemy of my enemies is my friend. What's more, his wife had, had also that night, if we, we kind of read and, um, in Matthew's account, uh, Matthew 27, 19, his wife had sent to a message that to basically have nothing to do with this Jesus. So that kind of probably was like, well, that's kind of weird. Why would my wife tell me to have nothing to do? Because she was basically terrified by a dream regarding Jesus the, the night before. And so once again, he offers to them the choice. Matthew 27, 21 says, which of the two do you want me to release for you? Jesus or Barabbas? And to which they cry, Barabbas. And Pilate then asks what they should do with Jesus. And their answer, crucify. Kill him. Execute him. Murder him. Give him the electric chair. Give him the lethal injection. Hang him, chop off his head, 
all the many methods and ways in which man has executed criminals. They are asking now for Jesus to be executed as a criminal. In fact, executed as the lowliest of criminals. Not just to, oh, just, you know, just chop him, chop off his head and make it a quick swift hit, but give him the most cruel kind of punishment that is, exists to hang there on the cross having been beaten and, and, and whipped. And so basically he has to suffocate him is suffocating to death while hanging on the cross with his hands and his feet pierced by nails. Their voices clamored and insisted upon crucifixion. And this is when Pilate, who asked the crowd uh, one more time, one more time, he tries to release Jesus. Verse 22 and 23. And he said to them the third time, Why? What evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt demanding death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. But they were insistent, with loud voices asking that he be crucified. And their voices began to prevail. He asked the crowds, Why? Why do you want to crucify this man? Jesus called the Christ. What evil has this man done? What, what reason do you guys want to kill him? You know, it's not normal, you know. Do, how many times do you guys think of the day, oh, I, I want to kill somebody. I, wa- I want the government to kill someone. It's a rare thought. I, I hope it's a rare thought <laughs> for many of us. But here they come, and they want Jesus, the Christ, Jesus Christ to be killed, to be murdered. What has he done to deserve to die? What evil has this man done? Again, Pilate affirms that the examination of Jesus resulted in no guilt demanding death. He again offers for a third time that he would punish Jesus, have him whipped and scourged, and then released. But the crowd continues to be insistent. They were insistent, verse 23. The word literally means to, to lie upon something, but came to have a figure to mean to, to press around, to press upon something. It's like people crowding around you and all shouting to you, crucify him, crucify him, come on, do it, do it. And there's an urgency that, is, that the crowds, and, it, and the crowd was pressing upon Pilate with, with such loud voices that Jesus be crucified that eventually their voices prevailed. They insisted on crucifying Jesus in place of releasing Barabbas. Jesus, who was the son of the father, was crucified so that sinful, murdering Barabbas, known as the son of the father, might be released. You can't miss that, the, the irony there. Given the choice between a murderer and the Messiah, the people insisted on the murderer. Give us the murderer. What shall I do with the Christ? Crucify him. Peter would write, would condemn uh, in his uh, in one of his early sermons uh, in Acts uh, this disowning of Jesus in Acts chapter three, verse thirteen to fifteen, and he would write there: "The God of our the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified His servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you." but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, 
a fact to which we are witnesses. Jesus, the King, the Holy and Righteous One, the Prince of Life, was disowned by his own people, by his Jewish people, for a murderer, for Barabbas. And again, what evil has this man done? Nothing. Then why this injustice? Why this injustice against the Son of God, the Christ? We are led to a third and final factor in magnifying the death of the just for the unjust in the death of Christ. And that is, in verses 24 to 25, we see the injustice of all. The injustice of all. We are in verse 24 25. And Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand be granted. And he released the man they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. But he delivered Jesus to their will. Though Pilate is the Roman governor of Judea with bearing Caesar's authority, and he has within his right Caesar's might through the Roman soldiers that are, that are garrisoned nearby at his service, though he knows that Jesus is innocent, yet still Pilate proceeds to administer an unjust sentence. Though Jesus is innocent. Pilate is a politician. And I, I know sometimes we, 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 uh, we grumble and complain about our politics. And I'm sure that not all politicians are evil. But here he's a politician in the most evil sense. He does what the people demand, even if it is evil, as long as it is expedient. The other gospel authors tell us the pressure that he was under. John 19.12 says, The Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be king opposes Caesar. They were threatening to, to report him to Caesar, essentially. Matthew 27.24 says, Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but a, rather a riot was starting. He was surrounded by a frenzied crowd demanding the blood of Jesus, this innocent man, for no legitimate reason. And it was the exact Thing that Pilate did not want during the feast, a riot. And so he does whatever, um, whatever expedient, uh, crafty politician does. He, he releases, he sacrifices the, the life of an innocent man for political peace. He releases a man who was an insurrectionist and a murderer the man who deserved to die for his crimes, and he delivered Jesus to their will. We see in these verses, you know, I think in many ways we see the, the culpability of all that are involved. First of all, we see that the Jewish leaders are guilty here. They're culpable in driving and pressing for Jesus' death. It was their insistence. It is their, uh, they're leading the crowds. It is their will that Jesus, that Jesus is delivered to. Their plan to kill him that comes to fruition but it's not just the Jews that are guilty. Gentile Pilate is also guilty. For he is the one who, in his official capacity, in his authority as a governor of, of Judea, to pronounce a just sentence. But instead, he pronounces an unjust, unjust sentence against an innocent man. Historically, we see in verses, uh, verses like this uh, that we read here have been used to justify anti-Semitism, blaming the Jews for killing Jesus. 
But we see that you cannot miss that both Jews and Gentiles are involved. All are guilty. All are culpable. It's not the Jews who killed Jesus. Yes, they are part of it. And it's not just the Gentiles who killed Jesus. Yes, they're part of it too. It's both Jews and Gentiles that have killed Jesus. But if we step back, we also see in these verses the sovereignty of God. That Jesus was delivered by Pilate to the will of the Jewish rulers. And although they are all guilty in what they've done, this would never have happened if it were not for the will of God himself. Peter would tell us on the day of Pentecost to his fellow Israelites, this man, Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. See, everybody's involved there. God is involved because of his plan. But it's you, Jewish people, who nailed him to the cross, and it's, but who, who condemned him to the cross. But it was the, by the hands of godless men, the Gentiles, who actually carried it out. All, are, all are, have an involvement in the, the murder of Jesus. Jews, Gentiles, and yes, even God the Father, but God the Father in such a way that he, where he is without guilt, where he is innocent. The death of Christ, the death of the just for the unjust was, has always been God's predetermined plan. It was his plan of salvation from eternity past. His purpose in sending his son. God sent his innocent son to die in place of sinners. And though it is his plan, God, and he uses sinful men to carry it out, God himself is never one who causes people to sin nor does he tempt anyone to sin. He is not without sin. Herod, Pilate, Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel are all guilty of the murder of Jesus. But there's one more guilty party. And that is ourselves. We see in these, in these verses here in, uh, um, foreshadowing of the substitutionary death of Christ. That the innocent Christ is delivered to death so that a guilty criminal might be released. It is Jesus who dies in the place of a murderer. It's Jesus who dies in the place of a sinner. And it's Jesus who dies in the place of you and me. We see this everywhere else in Scripture, that Jesus died in place of you and me for our sins. And Go to Romans 3, 23, 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's, that's all of us. We've all fall, we all have been sinned. Being justified, we're saved as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. See, God sent His Son to die on the cross as a, to redeem us from our sins. It's a gift of His grace. And He, demonstrated, he, he displayed it as a, as a public, in such a public way so that we know that God's wrath was satisfied on the cross. It was propitiated through the blood of Christ. And again, what evil has this man done? Nothing. Then why this injustice? Why does the innocent Son of God die on the cross? Because God is just. Because God is just. With a greater passion than you or I can ever have, God demands justice. God demands punishment for all sins. 
We may punish sins and we do it imperfectly because we are imperfect, sinful people. But when God punishes sin, even in his, with full infinite wrath, he is just in every, he is perfectly just in doing so. Whereas we generally demand that criminals are punished for their own crimes, God sent his son to be punished for our sins. The just for the unjust. So that for every sinner who repents and puts their faith in Christ, we find forgiveness. We're released like Barabbas, though we deserve to die. We're set free to live for Christ. You know, we never hear anything about what happens to Barabbas. I wonder if he ever did know later on. I mean, in fact, his name is mentioned. Maybe, maybe eventually somewhere along the way he came to know that Christ died for him. Whether he knows, I hope that all of you know that Christ, the innocent, holy Son of God, was sent by God to die the most agonizing of deaths, the most humbling of deaths for your sins and mine. And in that act of injustice, God brought about the carrying out of perfect justice. I'd like to read for you a quote uh, that I came across in uh, John MacArthur's book called uh, The Murder of Jesus. I like it. It's kind of summarizes what we talk about here, uh, some of the thoughts that we have here. And it's, that's real small font, but I'll read it. And he writes this in his, uh, it's kind of in his introduction. It is easy to look at the cross and conclude that this was the most, that this was the worst miscarriage of human justice in the history of the world. And it was. It was an evil act perpetrated by the hands of wicked men. But that is not the full story. The crucifixion of Christ was also the greatest act of divine justice ever carried out. It was done in full accord with the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, Acts 2.23. And for the highest of purposes, the death of Christ secured the salvation of untold numbers and opened the way for God to forgive sin without compromising his own perfectly holy standard. Why? What evil has he done? Nothing. But why then this injustice? Because of God's perfect justice. He is both the just and the justifier of those who put their faith in Christ. The death of Christ at the hands of sinful men is both the greatest injustice and the greatest act of justice in all of human history, in all the world. But and for us, as we look upon injustice in our world, as we look upon the, the, the travesties that go on and take place in our world, and as we pursue as Christ, individual Christians to conduct ourselves with justice, with ju seeking just to, to, to act humbly and justly, we must remember that we too are guilty of the greatest injustices in all, greatest injustice in all the world. But at the same time, we are the beneficiaries of the greatest act of justice in all human history. And may this truth of the death of the just for the unjust guide us in times when we are persecuted or we're mistreated for our faith or for the color of our skin or for no reason at all. And I'm often in a and I'm all, I often fear for myself as well as for all of us as a church, especially because we preach the gospel so often, so faithfully, so regularly, that we will someday, we will take the death of Christ for granted. 
Do you take the death of Christ for granted? In light of our current fight against the injustice racism, I would like to suggest that we know we have taken the death of Christ for granted. When when we are more passionate about injustices in our world than the injustice against our Lord. We've taken the death of Christ for granted when we are quick to condemn others for their injustice and forget about our own. We have taken the death of Christ for granted when we pursue the world's method to fight against sin rather than God's method, and that is reconciliation to God and to one another through repentance and faith in Christ crucified. And it's that, through that faith that forgives us of our sin, that sanctifies us from sin, and allows for people who would otherwise hate one another to love one another. One soul at a time. Heavenly Father, we thank you for reminding us again of the greatest injustice in all of human history in all the world. And we pray. We praise you and thank you for the grace that you have shown us in Christ. That in the cross where the innocent just one died for all the unjust ones. We see your grace and we see your mercy and your love magnified. Father, Help us, especially in light of our recent kind of world events, that we would look upon the the sin that is manifest in our world in light of the truth of the gospel. Help us to, to offer the solutions that the world, that your word offers and not what the world offers. And God, we know that your method may seem to the world to be slow, to be simple, perhaps even to be uh, naive. But Lord, what use is it to change the world, change governments, and not change the sinful souls of every man and woman in this world? Oh Lord, only you can change the heart. And we pray that we thank you and praise you for the gospel that Christ died for us so that we might now seek to be reconciled, have been reconciled to you, to be reconciled to others, to love one another, to love our enemies. And no matter what may divide us, to forgive others when they do wrong, to even bear up with them, knowing that Christ set for us the example. That when we reviled, he did not revile not. And though he was innocent, he died in place of us, once for all for sins. God, thank you for Christ. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your perfect justice that was manifest in the death of your son in place of us sinners. With thankful hearts, we praise you and worship you. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's respond with the final song.